Welcome to Driverless. This is Todd Northman, a partner in the business group of Tucker Ellis and a co-founder of the Autonomous Vehicle and Emerging Technology Group here at Tucker Ellis. I'm joined today by Emmanuel Sanders, a litigation associate here in the Cleveland hallway of Tucker Ellis. Together we speak with Professor Mark Geistfeld of New York University School of Law. Professor Geistfeld is the Sheila Lebetsky Birnbaum Professor of Civil Litigation, and Emanuel served as his research assistant on some terrific work Professor Geistfeld has done on autonomous vehicles. Professor Geistfeld has written several textbooks on products liability law, and more pertinently, written several articles on liability for autonomous vehicles including a seminal article published on November 2017 in the California Law Review titled A Roadmap for Autonomous Vehicles, State Tort Liability, Automobile Insurance, and Federal Safety Regulation. Emmanuel and I speak with Professor Geistfeld about his forecast for liability. This interview will be broken into two parts, so we hope you enjoy. Thanks for joining us. Professor Geistfeld, thanks for joining us. Let's start by exploring how you got interested in autonomous vehicles. Well, it's actually, in one respect, it's completely obvious because, uh, as Emmanuel mentioned at the outset, I do towards products liability and insurance. And in fact, products liability was really how I got uh, first got into tort law. Um, And so if you were to define the important features of autonomous vehicles with respect to the liability regime, you would say products liability insurance. Um, So in that respect, it's just a completely obvious fit with my scholarly interests. Um, But the truth of the matter is that that I was obviously following the issue, but I wasn't planning to turn my attention to it anytime soon. I tend to write articles that are more about doctrines and things like that as opposed to specific product-related issues. Um, But my wife is a a transportation planner, um, and in her world, uh, autonomous vehicles are a big deal uh and so i was sort of watching the things coming over her desk and realizing that this is all happening a lot more quickly than i had expected uh so maybe i ought to take a look uh and then uh not only did i find that in fact it is happening quite rapidly but actually there's a whole set of issues that are much more interesting than i had uh, anticipated at the outset um so if it weren't for her i might still be sitting on the sidelines. Um, So just another way in which I benefited from being married to that fabulous woman. Yeah, that's terrific. And certainly that resonates because I think what struck me about autonomous vehicles is it's like an onion. And the more layers you peel off, the more interesting the questions become. And while there's a kernel of product liability law at the very center, It's interesting how every time you look at it from a different perspective, different issues sort of become important here. And I'm hoping in our conversation today, we sort of use a mirror to see those different points from different perspectives, because I think things like product warning, 
that's fundamental to some of what we're going to see, particularly as we get to level four, level five. Yeah. But you know, more fundamentally, we read through your piece in the California Law Review, and what really the question we were struck with is, what is, in your mind, your contribution to the field? What did you think, given the literature that was already out, and law professors have jumped in with both feet, not showing the same hesitancy that you have traditionally had to write about this, and you reflect on this in the piece, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I think it comes right. through, a lot of it is pulling their hair out saying, oh my God, everything is different. Your conclusion strikes me as quite different than that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I was struck by the extent to which virtually every piece I read went off in a di different direction, and they uh, only really shared the premise that because this is a new technology, we need to start from scratch. Um, and then starting from scratch, the, the author would reach a different destination. Um, now in part, that's just due to the kind of dynamics of publishing. If you wanna place a article or something like that uh, with, with student editors, it's always easier to make claims about the novelty of your argument and so on. Um, so I always downplay that a little bit, but but the extent to which um, this was going on in this particular issue was really striking to me. Um, and what I found uh, is the first cut is that nobody had really paid that much attention to the technology itself. Uh, there was just this kind of, uh, a uh, view from 10,000 feet that we're going to replace the human driver with a, a machine. And so let's just analyze it in that respect. Uh, so the first thing I did was just to um, work through all the reasons why uh, this particular machine might end up causing a crash and injuring people. Uh, and when you break the problem down in that particular way, uh, lots of it uh, lots of the issues turn out to be no different from the kinds of issues that we deal with uh, on a day-to-day -day basis with other kinds of products. Um, an autonomous vehicle can malfunction in the same way that any other product can malfunction. Uh, there could be a bug in the software or something like that. Uh, and that doesn't really pose any sort of interesting or novel questions that the law can't deal with. Um, and so once I kind of cleared the deck uh, of all those problems, I uh, could really reduce the issue um, to the one that is at the heart of the debate, which is really, you know, if an autonomous vehicle is performing according to its system specifications, uh, working as designed uh, and ends up being in a crash, who's liable in that event? Um, now there, the, the prior uh, scholarship had been asking the question really within the frame of uh, conventional motor vehicle crashes. Because uh, of course today, when any time two motor vehicles crash, um, we look at the specifics of the situation because each crash is different because You've got two individual drivers who are reacting to the circumstances uh, that are idiosyncratic to that particular crash. Uh, so if you start to think about the crash of an autonomous vehicle from strictly from the perspective of an individual crash, 
you can see how the liability issue is quite perplexing. Should we evaluate the performance of the vehicle by reference to a reasonable human driver? Is that the right metric? If we don't do it that way, what would be the right metric? And so I think that's really where um, other analysts had, had sort of bounced off of the liability question. Um, and so I think to the extent that I kind of had a, an insight that opened up the, uh, the mode of inquiry for me is, is the realization that once we define the problem in this particular way, it's a mistake to focus on the circumstances of an individual crash. Uh, because unlike uh, conventional motor vehicles, which are driven by humans, uh, once we're talking about an autonomous vehicle, uh, level four, level five, we're talking about a vehicle that in effect is being driven by one driver, uh, the operating system, the software and hardware that, that executes the driving task for the vehicle. Um, and that driver is not just uh, involved in this particular crash here, but that driver is operating or behaving across the entire uh, domain in which the vehicle is designed to perform. Um, and so if you're going to evaluate the driving behavior of a system, then you need to evaluate its behavior across the system as a whole. Um, it would be a mistake to analyze any system uh, strictly in terms of how it performs on a particular occasion. Uh, so, for example, the fact that an autonomous vehicle is in a crash on a particular occasion that might have been avoided by a human driver, um, if you just focus on that, you're going to miss all of those other cases in which the autonomous vehicle avoided crashes uh, that humans routinely get into due to distraction or whatever. Um, and so to account for the performance in this particular respect, you have to look at the system-wide performance of the vehicle. Um, and once I was able to frame the question that way, uh, then I was able to, to show how established uh, tort doctrines can evaluate whether or not the uh, vehicle is reasonably safe for tort purposes. Mm -hmm. No, that makes sense. And I think it, it's a very interesting and helpful insight on a product's liability perspective. Does that work for, let's say, till 2040 or whenever we envision having a fleet of autonomous vehicles uh, crashing with a different fleet of autonomous vehicles or yeah. really fewer human drivers. But would that work in a human driver or, God forbid, a pedestrian autonomous vehicle accident where that pedestrian or that human driver makes a claim for not product liability, but just negligence? Yeah, no, negligence is going to turn on the same questions because it, the, the, essentially the test for evaluating the performance of a product uh, is really fundamentally no different from the ordinary negligence test, uh, just uh, somewhat tailored to the, the particularities of product performance. Um, but the negligence inquiry wouldn't wouldn't alter, uh, wouldn't be altered in that respect. Um, but your, you know, your question uh, does point toward what I think is is uh, the hard one of the hardest questions uh, in this area, which is what's the, you know, baseline for uh, comparison. If you talk about 2050 
Then if we're largely in a world of autonomous vehicles, how do we compare the system performance of one vehicle with another? Um, as opposed to today, how should we evaluate the system performance of an autonomous vehicle? Is it relative to other autonomous vehicles or is it relative to human drivers um, since the road is largely populated with human drivers? Um, so I think that as we ch the mix on the highway changes over time, um, the baseline for analysis is going to change over time. Um, but that's a contestable proposition and I expect that's an issue that uh, unless it's cleared up by federal regulation in some respect, that's an issue that's going to attract a fair amount of litigation. Mm -hmm. okay. okay. No, I'm glad you touched on that because that was one of the, uh, one of the points we wanted to dig into is do we have sort of a system where there is an incentive to see continuing improvement? So Emmanuel, right. I think maybe you had a question. Oh, I was just, now that you brought up, I mean, we could circle back um, but you brought up federal, federal regulation and an area that um, in, in one of your papers you, you've dealt with and um, we've also been considering a lot, um, just in our, Todd and I, in our talk, is how federal regulation in particular um, will, will, will be able to sort of adequately regulate autonomous vehicles, particularly as they become more and more advanced, let's say, like they become um, using neural networks and, and sort of kinds of um, technology that we don't fully, once they get to that point, we won't fully understand their decision making, how we'll regulate them. And related to that, how um, will, will the preemption defense um, work in cases when um, can you really rigorously regulate devices that in a sense, operate on levels that we can't necessarily uh, understand. We understand what decisions they're making, but why they make those decisions in particular circumstances, how, how preempts will, will or won't come into play there. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, you know, first, the, just that more general question about how do we regulate something uh, when we don't understand the reasons for why uh, they execute the actions that they do. Um, you know, that would matter for purposes of criminal liability, where we care about the state of mind of the, of the actor. Um, but, but one of, uh, one of the, the uh, important characteristics of tort law is that tort law is largely indifferent to purpose. Um, so we don't ask why somebody was driving a car on a particular occasion. We just ask how they drove the car on that occasion. We don't get into their decision-making. We just looked at how they behaved. Did they act reasonably safe or whatever? Um, so it's really the performance, uh, the creation of risk and so on that we're, we're interested in and not the reasons for it. Um, and we can certainly regulate autonomous vehicles based on its performance data, even if we really have no good idea of how a particular operating system made the decision that it did on a particular occasion. Um, so I think that aspect of the problem is really not uh, significant for tort purposes. It might be for other reasons, but certainly not for tort liability. Um, the federal regulation uh, component is, uh, you know, that's, uh, I think, critical to how the liability regime for autonomous vehicles is going to unfold over time. Um, the 
approach of the, the Trump administration thus far seems to be completely hands-off. Um, and uh, I think that the, the tech industry side, uh, Waymo, Uber, and so on, um, are happy with that framework because they don't want to be regulated. They think we can do things on our own and regulation is just going to stifle innovation. Um, and the administration's position through uh, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, uh, or NHTSA, um, essentially says, look, the technology is new. It's really kind of the uh, the, the motive uh, premise behind your uh, question here, Emmanuel, that the technology is new, it's unfolding, how are we going to come up with regulations, giving this evolving space? Uh, and again, particularly if we don't fully understand the technology, how could we regulate it? Um, now, I think that's a mistake not to uh, federally regulated because the truth of the matter is that these vehicles are already going to be regulated by state tort law. Um, so it's not a question of regulation or not. It's a question of whether we want to regulate this through the court system or whether we want to have federal regulations uh, that at least set some kind of framework um, for the tort liability regime. Um, and as between those two options, I think uh, it would be far better to have a, the right kind of federal regulatory framework in place. Um, now that then leads to the question, as you asked, of you know how can we do that if we don't know fully understand the technology? And that's essentially what NHTSA is saying right now. We have to let the technology develop before we can really adequately regulate it. Um, now I think that's a mistake because. The regulatory framework for motor vehicles right now uh, is essentially one that uh, is based on performance standards. Uh, so NHTSA will uh, adopt a regulation that says that vehicle ought to perform in a certain kind of way. Um, and this regulatory framework is designed so that manufacturers can figure out the best way to achieve that performance standard. Um, so NHTSA is not going to mandate how the technology should develop. NHTSA only mandates how the technology should perform. Um, so once again, we return back to performance standards. Um, and as I was uh, alluding to earlier, I think there's a, there is under existing law, we can figure out right now without understanding how vehicles might satisfy that standard, we can figure out right now the kind of stand, uh, performance that we expect from an autonomous vehicle when it's operating according to design uh, across its intended operating domain. Um, and so if we don't address that by federal regulation, like I said, the, the state courts are going to end up uh, addressing it in litigation. Uh, and it'll all get worked out ultimately, uh, but we'll get there much sooner at much lower cost if we have uh, the right kind of regulatory framework in place. And do you have in mind what that regulatory framework would look like? Because I have to yeah, confess, well, I, right. So go ahead. Well, so that's you know, so that clearly is the the uh, the contestable part of all this because uh, getting the right standard is obviously key to this. Um, and now, NHTSA can certainly um, promulgate the standards in a way 
that will effectively preempt uh, any tort claim on the matter. Um, so you need to make sure that uh, it is, uh, if, if we're going to go in that direction, that we want to get the kind of standards uh, that would be best for society. Um, and so, so in that part of my uh, my paper in the California Law Review, um, to address that issue, I really just um, asked the question of if we made the strongest possible case for liability. So if any time we had to make an assumption, we made an assumption that would, would subject the car manufacturer to liability. Um, so if we construct a scenario like that, how safely would the autonomous vehicle have to perform in order for it to avoid liability. So in other words, at what point do you end up getting into a safe harbor where we can be confident um, that once you're at this level under existing port standards, there is no liability. Uh, and that analysis, which I could, the logic of which I can describe in greater detail um, later on, is, is that the, the autonomous vehicle should perform, I think, twice as safely as human drivers in conventional vehicles. Um, that would be the initial standard that we would want, where again, if we load all the assumptions in favor of liability, the manufacturer could show that it achieves that performance standard. Um, it would satisfy the associated obligations, uh, tort obligations in the vast majority of states. Um, so once we have that in place, if we realize that most states would uh, not hold the manufacturer liable under those conditions. Then my argument is that NHTSA should adopt a federal regulation that requires uh, the manufacturer to certify that its vehicle can perform at least twice as safely as conventional vehicles. Uh, then NHTSA will have to specify how a manufacturer can go about proving that, uh, you know, the amount of testing, road conditions, and so on. Um, and how the manufacturer, again, designs the vehicle to get there is completely up to the manufacturer. But once you're at that point, uh, you would satisfy the federal safety standard. Uh, and you would also, by definition, the way I formulated, satisfy the safety standard in the vast majority of states. The few states that have differing standards, uh, claims in those states would be preempted because they'd be inconsistent with the federal regulatory scheme and therefore impliedly preempted. Um, so we'd have a clear standard, we'd have it nationally uniform, uh, and it would, would satisfy the requirements of reasonable safety in the vast majority of states. Um, so twice as safe is the first move. And then of course, over time, we're not gonna use human drivers as the baseline. We're gonna wanna to think about the performance of autonomous vehicles relative to vehicles that are already on the market and so on. Um, so this is really just the standard uh, for transitional purposes. Mm -hmm. Well, and I love the objectivity of having twice as safe because, you know, you see periodically people float the idea that there should be a driver's license for motor vehicles, something like that, always punting on the question of, so how would you test them and would you really be learning anything and I think back to my 16 year old son getting his driver's license and right. realizing he was by no means a fully formed yes. driver and I would yes. certainly be satisfied with you know if if everyone were twice as safe as our current driving population would be miles better off 
So yeah, but yeah. Well, actually, you know, your 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 uh, reference to 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 a child uh, learning how to drive is actually really interesting in this context because the the uh, I've I've ridden in a, a Tesla um, in the automatic driving mode, um, and what I found myself doing uh, as I was sitting there in the front seat was the same thing that I did when my son first learned how to drive, which is like I was phantom braking every time I, I thought that we should be slowing down or whatever because I didn't really fully trust, um, you know, the, just the fact that we're out there. I need to see you do it for a while before I'm comfortable with how you do it. Um, and one of the huge, huge issues here is going to be if this isn't regulated properly up front, there's going to be a huge loss of consumer confidence that's going to really um, slow down the uh, introduction of this technology into the marketplace. That concludes the first part of our interview with Professor Geisfeld. Join us again next week as we conclude the interview. Thanks so much. So much.